John chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Jesus oftentimes performed miracles, we know, in order to serve as living illustrations for a message containing spiritual truth. And we saw this back, remember, in chapter 6, when the Lord had fed the 5,000, or at least 5,000, probably 15,000 people, in order to illustrate and confirm the truth that he had just presented in the Bread of Life sermon. And we will see it again when he proclaims himself to be the resurrection and the life and then illustrates and confirms that truth by raising Lazarus from the dead. And that will be in John chapter 11. In the chapter before us today, we have the Lord's living illustration and confirmation of his light of the world sermon, which he had just given to us in chapter 8. Because we come now to the miracle of the healing of the man who was born blind. And this miracle only appears in John's gospel. It is the sixth of seven miracles which John selected to record. He only selected seven miracles to record, and this is the sixth one. And by the way, it is the 30th chronological miracle in our study of our Lord's life. However, as we will see, the greatest miracle in this chapter was not the physical opening of the man's eyes, but it was the opening of his heart to the light of truth concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there is an intimate connection between John chapter 8, which we have just been spending so much time going over, and John chapter 9. And this will become progressively more obvious to us as we proceed into this lesson. But just by way of introduction, I want to mention just a few of these connections. First of all, you will remember that chapter 8 ended with the Lord Jesus hiding himself from the Pharisees who had become so angry with his statement, his claim about uh, being the great I am that they wanted to pick up stones to cast at him. Somehow, even though those from whom he hid had physical vision, yet they could not see him as he passed by to escape their rage. Now, John chapter 9 opens with the Lord passing by a man who physically had no way that he could see Jesus. But rather than hiding himself from the man, as he had with the Jews, the Lord approached him and made it possible for this man to be able to see him physically. So what we really have in this is an illustration of a theological contrast. Salvation, you know, is a mysterious combination of man's own free choice, man's willful choice and God's predetermined grace. In chapter 8, we have the light, the Lord Jesus Christ, testing human responsibility. You remember that he repeatedly gave his listeners opportunities to come to him. Some, we found, did make the choice to come to him. Some did believe on him with genuine saving faith, and we saw that in verse 30. While others only hated him all the more, and they chose against him. As a matter of fact, they not only chose against him, but they decided that they wanted to kill him. 
In chapter 9, we have an illustration in this healing of the man born blind of God's predetermined sovereign grace. See, in chapter 8, it was an invitation. Man had to make the choice. Would you come to him or not? And that's what we have in this picture here where it says, whosoever will may come. That's our choice. We have to decide if we'll choose for or against Christ. But the mysterious combination is that once, this is like going into heaven, once you've made your choice and you look around, you look back, you see that you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So there's, you know, the um, predestination part of it. It's just a mysterious combination. To us, it doesn't really make sense, but to God, it does. And his ways are way higher than ours. So what we have against the dark background of John chapter 8, we have the bright luster of grace, which is shown to us in John chapter 9. And of course, against that dark background, it shines all the more brightly. We can be sure that Jesus passed by that day other blind men. I'm sure there were a lot of um, handicapped people lying around, sitting around. But he stopped to heal only one man. And Romans 9.15 tells us that it is God's prerogative to have mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy. A lot of blind men sitting around. But, of course, he knew that man's heart better than anyone else. And he was the one that he went to that day. So in this, we will see we have a beautiful picture of the mystery of salvation. In John chapter 8, we saw man's free choice. In John chapter 9, we'll see God's predetermined grace. Other contrasts between these two chapters are that in John chapter 8, Jesus exposed darkness. He was the light of the world, and what does the light do? It shines upon men's evil, upon their darkness, and that's what happened in chapter 8. While in chapter 9, we find him communicating light. He is the light, and he will communicate it. He was hated and rejected in chapter 8. In chapter 9, we will find that he is received and he is worshipped. In chapter 8, the spiritually blind men, spiritually blind, that would be the Pharisees, stooped down in order to pick up one of earth's products, which was stones, in order to cast at Jesus, thus attempting to perform an act of wickedness. In chapter 9, we will see that the Lord is the one who stoops down to pick up one of earth's products, clay, in order to anoint a blind man's eyes and perform not an act of wickedness, but an act of mercy. In chapter 8, we find those in whom the Lord's words had no place. In chapter 9, we will find one who responds readily to the Lord's words and eagerly. In chapter 8, inside the temple, Jesus is called a demoniac. Remember that? A Samaritan and a demoniac. Now, in chapter 9, outside of the temple where this blind man was sitting, we will find that he is called a much better title. He is called Lord. And we'll come to realize many other as we progress through this chapter, John chapter 9, in our two-part study. The light gives sight. And as you can see on the outline, I've broken the chapter down into four divisions For study purposes, today we will only get through part one, an illustration. And under that, we'll look at the actual situation and its source. 
and then we'll look at the solution and its significance. The significance is really interesting, so we'll have fun when we get to that. Then next week, hopefully, Lord willing, we'll cover the interrogation of the blind man and his parents, you know, that whole big, long interrogation. Then we'll look at an identification, that is when the blind man comes to identify who the Lord really is. And then finally, very briefly, an impartation as the Lord uh, gives a final message. So let's begin now by looking at an illustration, part A, the situation and its source, and we'll read verses 1 through 5 of John chapter 9. It says, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me, while it is day. The night cometh, when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We immediately see here, as I mentioned in the introduction, the connection between chapter 8 and chapter 9 when we compare the last verse of chapter 8, 859, with the first verse of chapter 9. The Jews picked up stones to cast at Jesus, who then hid himself, and it says, look there, and so passed by. And then we immediately read in John 9, 1, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. What a beautiful picture of the character and the person of the Lord Jesus we have in these simple little verses given to us here. He could have so easily been distraught by the rejection of the Jews and by their attempt to kill him. And he could have so easily been preoccupied with his own problems, you know, with his own sorrow and his own pain, that he would be so preoccupied he would fail to notice anybody else who was hurting. I mean, I probably would. I'd be so wrapped up in, you know, the feelings of rejection and everything that I wouldn't notice anybody else as I passed by. But he never, Jesus never fell victim to self-pity. And he was always considering those around him who needed his light in order to free them from their bondage to sin and to darkness and to Satan. He never wearied in well-doing. He never allowed man's wickedness to hinder the stream of divine goodness and mercy which was continually flowing out of him. Love suffers long. Love beareth all things. Isn't that what it tells us in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13? Such was the love of Jesus. So with his eyes not fixed on his own problems, he saw a man who had a serious problem. This man was born blind. He had a congenital handicap. He had been born without any physical sight. What he does for us is symbolically represents all men, all natural men, unregenerate man, because all of us are born in the same condition, spiritually speaking. We are all born spiritually blind. 
As Ephesians 4.18 tells us, our understanding is darkened and our hearts are blinded. We cannot see the terribleness of our own situation because as Jesus told Nicodemus, except a man be what? Born again, he cannot see. He cannot see the kingdom of God. More than anything else, what the natural man needs is to be able to see the light of truth found in Jesus Christ and found in his word. Now, it's interesting that there are more specifically recorded cases of Jesus healing blindness than any other single physical affliction. Did you know that? He heals more blind men than he heals lepers. I mean, specifically recorded. We know that sometimes people came to him all day, but those weren't, we don't know the count on that. But there are more specifically recorded healings of blindness than any other physical disease. Now, that's not counting demoniacs. He actually healed more demoniacs than anything, but that was a spiritual affliction, not a physical affliction. He healed, by the way, seven accounts of demoniacs, but there were um, five or six, I think there were six actually blind men that were recorded as being healed. I think in this that the Holy Spirit was apparently trying to emphasize the fact that apart from Christ, man is spiritually in the dark. And what he needs, more than anything, is God's grace to give him sight so that he can see the light. And the light is Jesus. Now the case before us is the only one that we have that we know of that involved a man who was born blind, a man who had never in his whole life seen the light of day, had never seen the beauty of a tree or a flower or a bird or a rose or even a human face, had never seen the face of his own mother or father. Now, in those days, about the only thing that a blind man could do to have a little money, have a little income, was what? beg. And that was what this man did. Apparently his parents weren't wealthy enough to support him. So day after day, year after year, he sat probably at one of the gates to the temple. Now this particular day that his healing takes place on was a Sabbath day. We know that. You can look ahead and look at verse 14. That's what's going to cause such a rise out of the religious leaders. The fact that Jesus healed a man on a Sabbath day. It was a Sabbath day, so beggars were not allowed to ask for or receive alms on the Sabbath day. But it would be to the man's advantage to be seen sitting near the temple on the Sabbath day because then people would think that he was a religious man and they would be more prone to give to him on the other days of the week. Again, in this, we have a picture, symbolically speaking, of the natural man who is not only spiritually blind from birth, but who is also really a beggar. Because we own nothing. None of us come into this world with anything, do we? And can we take a U-Haul with us when we go? We come into this world empty-handed, and we leave this world empty-handed. And we are dependent solely throughout our lifetime, on the charity and the mercy of God for absolutely everything that we receive. All men are born blind beggars, as far as their spiritual condition is concerned. Since they cannot see the light of truth about Jesus Christ, he must, in his grace, seek them out, as he does with this man. 
Galatians 4.9 tells us that if we know anything at all of Christ, it is because we were first known of him or first apprehended of him, it tells us in Philippians 3.12. We love him because he first loved us, absolutely. Now, although the Lord had compassion on this man, as he always does, It's interesting because we see that his disciples, who by this point really should have known better, his disciples seem to have very little feeling, compassion for the man. Rather than seeing the man as an object for mercy, as the Lord did, they instead see him as a subject for a theological discussion. The issue over which they demonstrate curiosity here was the issue of suffering, and the inequalities of it as far as the, as human existence is concerned. And this, of course, is an issue which has plagued mankind down through the corridors of time. Why should some people be born into wealthy families and never go hungry one single day of their whole life, while other people are born poor and live their life half-starving? Why are some people born with severe handicaps while others are born whole and healthy? Why are some born with great mental capacities whereas some others are born mentally retarded? Why are some greatly talented while others seem hardly able to do anything? Why are some couples blessed with multiple children while other couples cannot have any children? Men have sought for an explanation to this mystery for ages and have come up with, as you can imagine, a variety of answers. The disciples, seeing the Lord stop before this man, apparently saw this as an excellent opportunity to find out from him who exactly was responsible for this blind man's condition. Following the Jewish thought or the Jewish teaching on this, that all physical disabilities were the result, are the result of divine judgment for sin, they conclude, the disciples concluded, that either the man's parents had sinned or else the man himself had sinned, and that's why he was born blind. At the time of the Lord, there were three popular theories about this particular problem of suffering, particularly in the area of congenital suffering. You know what I mean when I say congenital, something that you're born with. And uh, these were held by the philosophers and the theologians of those days. The one which gained support while the Jews were over in captivity in Babylon and which was strongly believed by both the Persians and the Greeks was the doctrine of reincarnation. And it's sort of interesting for us to discuss this because this is such a popular theory today. This is a book I've got at home about the New Age movement. Reincarnation, as you all know, I'm sure, is the teaching that the soul of man returns again and again to earth and that the law of retribution determines a man's lot, his fate, in each succeeding life. In other words, if a man had been quite sinful in a previous life, then he would suffer for that sin in his next life. He might come back, you know, as a frog or something. 
This was how the philosophers explained the obvious inequalities among men. Those whom they saw suffering, such as this blind beggar, were not necessarily to be pitied because they were reaping the punishment for all the wickedness that they had sown, you see, in their previous life. That's why if you go to India today, there's not a whole lot of compassion among the Indians in India who are Hindus, you know, and believe in this reincarnation business. They will step over people dying in the streets because they feel they are merely reaping what they've sown in a previous life. And it's no big deal if they die anyway because they'll have an opportunity to come back in another life form, you know, next time around. Maybe they'll get it better. So it doesn't tend to make people very compassionate. We know, of course, or I hope you know, that this theory of reincarnation is totally unbiblical. But it was still believed among many of the Jews during Christ's lifetime. Because we have already, if you remember, we have already seen evidence of it. For example, back in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 14, when Jesus asked his disciples who it was that men said he is, or he was, What did they answer? They said, some believe that you are John the Baptist. Now, John was dead. So how could he be John the Baptist? Well, they believed in reincarnation. The soul of John the Baptist had come back and was now in the body of this man, Jesus. And others said that he was Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. They believed in reincarnation. So this shows us that they thought the soul of one of these men had returned and was reincarnated in Jesus. And who else, remember, had this problem? Was afraid of Jesus because he thought that he was John the Baptist reincarnated. Yes, Herod Herod was scared to death of Jesus because of that. Because he's the one that had John's head cut off. But among the rabbis, the theory of reincarnation was considered heresy. Thank goodness they they knew that much, and they knew that that was heresy, which it is. And it is completely without scriptural support. They knew it. The rabbis knew it. And I hope you know it, too. There's some verses you'll have in your homework that you can look up and will show you that definitely the scripture does not teach uh, reincarnation. One of them... Probably one of the strongest verses is Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. So how did they explain the problem of human suffering, the rabbis? Well, the majority of them held to the law of heredity. They used Exodus 20, verse 5, as their support text for this, and that reads... Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, speaking of the graven images, the idols, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities or the sins of the fathers upon the children unto the third and the fourth generation of them that hate me. Now those that followed the rabbi's teaching believed that all congenital Afflictions, all congenital uh, illnesses and handicaps was to be attributed to the sins of the parents or to the grandparents, the great-grandparents, all the way back to four generations. Now, some of the Jews, including the Pharisees, understood that all congenital suffering could not be blamed on someone else. 
whether it be parents or grandparents, great-grandparents, whatever. They took into consideration the whole counsel of God, which is what we are always to do. They remembered about Ezekiel 18, verse 20, and other such passages which state, The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. In other words, if you're wicked, that you're going to have to deal with that yourself. Therefore, a third theory developed, which held that a child could sin while it was yet in its mother's womb. And this view they supported with Genesis 25:22, which talks about the struggle going on between the twins, Jacob and Esau, while they were in Rebekah's womb. It's sort of a weak support scripture, I thought, but that's the one they use. Now, included also, sort of in this view, was the teaching that a congenital affliction uh, might be a divine punishment for a foreseen sin. You know, a sin that God saw ahead of time that an individual would commit in their lifetime. So, you know, he took care of that early and had them born punished. But that's ridiculous, too, because he sees all of our sins ahead of time, so every one of us should be punished ahead of time like that. But anyway, that was, that was the, those were the three main theories. However, the rest of the Old Testament should have taught these men that came up with these different views, especially the Jewish people, because they had the Old Testament, should have taught them not to ever make such a sweeping generalization as to say that all suffering is... The product of sin is uh, being is uh, the result of sin. The case of Job alone should have at least tempered their view on this. While it is definitely true that all physical problems are the result of our fall in Adam, our first parent, because of the fact that his disobedience brought sin and suffering and death into this world, yet. To blame a specific disability or a specific handicap or calamity on a specific sin committed by specific people is really beyond man's ability or man's authority to judge, as you remember Job's friends took it upon themselves to do. Only God knows why certain babies are born with handicaps and with certain afflictions. And only God himself can take that disability and not only bring good into the lives of those that are involved in that situation, but also bring glory to himself through that particular affliction. The disciples, we know, were obviously influenced by these philosophies of their day when they asked Jesus, Master, who did sin? This man, like in a previous life, did he sin? Or did he sin in his mother's womb? Or maybe you saw ahead of time that he would live a wicked life. Did you punish him for that? Or did his parents sin that he was born? Line. So you can see there, they were, they were influenced by the thinking of their day. That was in verse 2. Also, they may have remembered the Lord's own words 
to the impotent man at the pool of Bethesda back in John chapter 5, verse 14, where Jesus had said to the man after healing him these words, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. So maybe they were thinking about that. Now, in that particular man's situation, it does sound like he was being punished for some sin. Because Jesus said, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. So it's not to say that there isn't some judgment for sin. And some of it might be suffering, you know, an affliction of some kind. Now, notice that the Lord returned the disciples' question with a double answer. He said, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. On the negative side of the situation, Jesus said that the man's congenital blindness was neither a direct result of his sin or of his parents' sin. And of course, I hope you know by this statement that Jesus was not saying that neither the man or his parents had ever sinned. He wasn't saying that. But he was saying that their specific sin of some kind was not the reason for why the man had been born blind. And I think all of us need to remember this verse. We need to remember this so that we don't fall into the trap of Job's friends trying to assume the role of holy judge and passing judgment on other people's hardships and calamities. Only God himself knows why he allows certain things to happen. Sometimes it is for correction. Sometimes it is a result of just living in a fallen and cursed world. Sometimes it is a satanic attack. Sometimes it is for our own spiritual growth. Sometimes God does things in order to draw someone to him for initial salvation. And sometimes it is for his glory, which brings us to the positive side of the Lord's response here. Jesus said that the man was born blind so that the works of God should be made manifest in him, in the blind man. In other words, Christ was declaring... That, that this man had been born blind so that he could be the vessel through whom God would demonstrate the exceeding greatness of his mercy and his love and his grace and his power. This was a deliberate situation which had been planned in heaven with a specific divine purpose in mind. This man's affliction was going to be used to reveal God's healing touch of light in a human life. Although the world might argue about the goodness and the real love of a God who would allow such things to happen, we as Christians must remember that their arguments are based on their own spiritual blindness because they are blind to the world out there. The answer to their bitter philosophies is found in the book of Job and is now further illustrated to us in this situation with this blind beggar. Job's friends and Job's wife, we could throw her in on it too, and the Pharisees 
and those supposed intellectual agnostics who fill so many of our university campuses might each argue their various views on the inequality of the human situation, but they are all doing so from the disadvantage of having incomplete information, inadequate information. They do not, first of all, understand that God is too loving to be unkind. They do not understand that he is too wise to make any mistakes. And they do not understand that he is too powerful to be diverted from his ultimate purposes. This man's blindness was not just a result of chance luck. There really is no such thing. The word luck should be taken out of the Christian's vocabulary. It was not for punishment. It was not luck, and it was not for punishment. It was not proof that there is just an apathetic God up there. And it is not proof of the non-existence of a God up there. It was a purposeful part of a predetermined plan unknown to anyone but the triune Godhead himself. It was part of a divine plan which was intended to bring the light of truth into this particular man's life and ultimate praise and glory to both God the Father and to God the Son. A very deep principle is found in our Lord's words here, which throws some light on the great question of mankind regarding the existence, the origin of evil. God has seen fit to permit evil to exist so that he might have a platform for demonstrating his attributes, his attributes of grace and mercy and love. If mankind had never fallen in the first place, there would have been no opportunity for God to show his divine mercy and his grace. The angels, you know, the elect angels, know nothing about, experientially nothing about the grace of God, do they? So in order to show that particular attribute and be praised for it, he had to create man, and man had to fall, so then... God would have this platform for demonstrating this particular attribute of his, his grace and his mercy. By allowing evil, as mysterious as it seems, God's works of grace and mercy and wisdom in saving sinners have been wonderfully manifested to all of his created beings. And this is basically what it tells us in Ephesians 3.10, where it tells us that by redeeming sinners and placing them into his church, the church of Jesus Christ, God was showing the principalities and the powers, the spiritual beings in heavenly places, he was showing to them his manifold wisdom. Look that up sometime, Ephesians 3.10, and study it. The best way to answer the question of the mystery of evil is to take into consideration the end of it and ask what good comes of it. We might ask, why was this man born blind? And the answer is that the works of God might be made known and Christ might have an opportunity to illustrate the truth of his claim to being the light of the world. We might ask, why did man fall? 
all man. Why did mankind fall? The reason? That God might save him. Why is evil permitted in the world? That God might be glorified by removing it. Why does the body of man die? That God might be glorified in raising it up again. When we think in this manner, when we train our brains to think in this manner, we find light and we find comfort in the fact that God has a wise plan in everything he does and in everything that he allows. So to any of you, and I know there are many of you here today, who are afflicted or who have loved ones who are afflicted with some type of a problem they're suffering from, I hope that you can take comfort in our Lord's words here. Not so much that you might expect to be relieved by a miracle or have them relieved by a miracle, because that is not always his will, but that you might realize that in all things God has a wise purpose, even if it presently is not known to you what that purpose is. It is a way in which he might do works through and in you that will make him manifest to others so that he is glorified in you. God has sovereign authority over all of his creatures, everything that he has created. Therefore, he has an exclusive right to work with them as he pleases, as he chooses. He may make them serviceable for his glory in any way that he thinks is best. And that may sometimes be by way of suffering. The ultimate thing to remember, however, is that when God is glorified, either by us or in us, then we were not made in vain. Neither did we suffer in vain. And it may take many, many years to understand how this might happen, as it took many, many years for this blind man before Jesus passed by him and made it evident to him why he had been born in total darkness. But it was well worth it for this man to have been blind all those years that the works of God might be made manifest in him. I'm sure that when you and I get to heaven and we look up this particular man, we'll know then what his name is, we look him up, we'll be able to walk up to him and ask him if it was worth all those years of living in total darkness to get him to where he is there in eternity. And I'm sure that he will answer us and say, yes, it was well worth it. Those years of suffering to me now seem like just a drop in a bucket. And had I not been blind from birth... I probably would never have met Jesus Christ. And I would not right now be enjoying the eternal bliss of this heaven about me. He'll, he'll say to us, I feel sure, yes, it was very much worth it. And I'm glad that God made me blind. 
And I'm glad that his works were made manifest in me to others because he'll point to other people up there in heaven and say, these people are also here today because of what they saw Jesus do in me and through me. But as to what God's purpose is in an affliction, how it is to be accomplished, and when it will be accomplished, you and I are not to be obsessively concerned. We may never know on this side of life. Job was never really given an answer, was he? If you read the book of Job, he was never really given an answer for why he had to go through all that suffering. He had to get to the point where he realized the sovereignty of God and where he bowed to it without any question. Can you read that? That's the IRS man coming up to Job. He says, Mr. Job, I'm from the IRS. Hope this isn't a bad time. (laughs) For the believer, we have God's promise that whatever it is that he allows in our lives, it is ultimately for our own good and for his glory. We need to remember that. Jesus said in verse 4, That he must, notice that word must, work the works of him that sent him. While it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. In other words, he was saying that this blind man's situation was something that he must deal with since it had been predetermined in eternity past. This was not just a coincidental meeting here where he passed by and, oh, there's a man suffering over there. I think I'll take care of it. No, it was a divine appointment which had been prearranged in eternity past. Just as Jesus, remember back in John chapter 4, verse 4, he had said that he must needs go through Samaria. He didn't have a choice about going through Samaria. He must needs go through. Why was that? Because there was a work there for him to perform. It was a work that had been assigned to him by the Father who had sent him. And that, of course, was his divine appointment with a particular Samaritan woman at a well so that a whole town could be saved. This was not only to be a work then, this work with the blind man, which was pleasing to God the Father, but it was to be a work which had been predetermined by God the Father. And Jesus had to perform his works, his miracles, which testified of his person while it was yet what? Day. While it was yet day, because he said the night was soon to come. By day here, in reference to himself, Jesus was talking about the time of his earthly ministry when God was at work in the world in a very unique way, because he himself was in the world working. The night referred to the time when he would withdraw from the earth, and that particular night has now involved some 2,000 years when the world is without the true direct light of Jesus Christ in the world, although the world has the reflected light of Jesus in the what? The church. We are the light of the world right now, but we are a reflected light. 
And of course, we can take this verse and apply it to ourselves, too, because our day is the time of our earthly ministry. While we're walking the face of the earth, that is the only time we have to work the works of God. Because once we leave this world, then in essence, it's night, even though it will be even a brighter day for us. But our work part of things will be finished. And all that we will receive in the way of rewards will only be from what we accomplish in this life. Jesus concluded by saying, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Verse 5. Soon, very soon, probably about five months from where we are in our study, I don't mean you and I, but in the Bible, uh, soon the divinely appointed time would come for the Lord to leave the world. But as long as he was still presently in the world at that time, he was still the light of the world, and his light would shine until he himself put it out. The stones and the hatred of the Jewish religious leaders would not be able to put it out until his work, the work that God had sent him to perform was finished. So the man's blindness provided another opportunity for Jesus to repeat this important I am statement, didn't it? He had made it, remember, back in John 8, 12. And now the circumstances were such that he was able to repeat this important I am the light of the world statement. And then perform a miracle to illustrate that statement and to confirm his claim to confirm that he really is the light of the world. Who else could open the eyes of a blind man? As a matter of fact, the fact that he did, that he was able to open the eyes of a blind man, was a very strong affirmation of the fact that he is indeed the Messiah, the light of the world. Because do you know, if you read all the way through the Old Testament, you will never find anyone healing a blind man. And if you look in the book of Acts... You will never find uh, the healing of a blind man. It was specifically a messianic prophecy foretold by Isaiah that when the Messiah himself would come, he would be able to open the eyes of the blind. Let's move on then to part B of our outline, the solution and its significance. Look at verses 6 through 12 with me. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is, by interpretation, sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed, and came seeing. The neighbors... Oh, no, that's where I want to end. We'll pick up with the neighbors next week. Verses 6 and 7 tell us that the Lord, after speaking, making his statement again to be the light of the world, then spat on the ground and made a mixture from the clay, the dust of the ground, and his own spittle. Made some clay. With this clay mixture, he anointed the man's eyes. And then he told the man to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which the scripture tells us means scent. That's the interpretation of the word Siloam. And the man obeyed the Lord's instructions, he went down to the water, washed his eyes, and instantly was given his sight. And that very quickly was the Lord's solution to this man's blindness. But what we need to consider in more detail is the significance of all that he did in performing this miracle. First of all, notice that the Lord did not always perform his miracles in the same way. 
He had previously healed two blind men merely by touching their eyes. That was back in Matthew 9, verses 27 to 31. On another occasion, he healed a blind man merely by putting his spit on the man's eyes. Didn't mix it with clay. And that was in Mark 8, 22 and 26 to 26. Sometimes we find that the Lord touches people. Sometimes he merely speaks a word. Sometimes he even spoke a word from a distance, didn't he? And in one particular case, a woman reached out and touched him, touched the hem of his garment, and she was instantly healed. So what we need to learn in this is that although the power is always the same, the methods vary. The Lord purposely did this so that people would not focus on his methods of healing and think that it's some kind of little abracadabra, little magic formula, you know, that you have to do this and this and this and then somebody will be healed. He didn't want people to focus on the methods. He wanted them to focus on his message, which the healing illustrated. And his message is always focused on what? On who he is, on his person. He wanted people to believe that he was who he claimed to be. All of his physical healings were performed in order to convince people to trust in him for their spiritual healing. Because the spiritual healing is by far the more important of the two. Now, why did Jesus use clay to anoint the man's eyes? Well, for one thing, clay was a symbolic picture of the humanity of Jesus, of his incarnation. God not only made the first man, Adam, who had fallen out of the clay of the earth, but he sent his son to earth to take on one of these clay bodies, to take on a human body. So symbolically, it pointed to the humanity of Jesus, and it was the humanity of Jesus Christ over which so many in their blindness stumbled. It was the humanity of Jesus which prevented so many from hearing his words, the words of truth which he spoke. So the clay represented his humanity, but it also uh, pointed at the same time to his deity, which is unique. Why shouldn't those same creative hands which made man of the clay of the earth in the first place, use that same material, clay, to heal one of man's body parts. It only makes sense. You know, it's interesting to consider that the Lord uses such simple things to accomplish his works. Here he uses clay and spit. I mean, pretty unlikely things to perform. I mean, it's almost kind of nasty. To demonstrate that the power, he does this to demonstrate that the power is not in the product, but it is in the person. It's in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. What did he use to knock down those mighty walls of Jericho? Ram's horns. I mean, kind of an unlikely thing. How did Samson kill all those Philistines? thousand of them or something? With the jawbone of an ass. I mean, you see, the Lord uses the most unlikely things to perform his work so that people won't focus on the product, but on the person. And that I got to thinking about. That's why he uses you and me. 
He uses the foolish, weak, and despised clay vessels that you and I are to perform, to do his works on earth so that people won't focus on the clay vessel, but they'll focus on the potter, on God himself, who's working through these foolish pots that we are. All right, now we get to the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of Siloam symbolizes the Word of God. We are cleansed by the washing of the water of the Word of God, it tells us in Ephesians 5.26. This man not only needed to hear the Word of God, you know, when God, Christ, gave him the command, he obeyed, he heard the Word of God, but he also needed to apply it. It was because the Jews had failed to apply the water of the word that their eyes of spiritual understanding had remained closed. Jesus had told them, the religious leaders in particular earlier, he had told them to search the scriptures, for they are they which testify of me. John 5.39 Since, however, they thought that they could already see, they refused the testimony of the written word, and they refused, therefore, to be washed by the cleansing power of the word of God. But this beggar knew that he was blind, so he gladly used the water that Christ referred him to. Psalm 119, verse 130, tells us that it is the entrance of God's words which alone bring light. This man knew he was blind, so he applied the word, and the pool of Siloam speaks symbolically of the word of God. Because of the fact that John, the author John, um, included the interpretation of the word Siloam, we can pretty well guess that it uh, has significance in the fact that it means sent. And there definitely is significance here. Not only does the pool of Siloam represent the water of the written word of God, the scripture, the Bible, but in its name, it represents the living word of God, Jesus Christ, who was sent by his Father to give sight to the blind and to set the captives free. Jesus Christ is none other than the sent one of God the Father. As a matter of fact, there is a total of 17 times in just these first nine chapters of John's Gospel where Jesus is referred to by that title. You can go back and circle them. I did. Where he talks about that he was sent. He is the sent one. So is it any wonder that he then sent the man to the place called sent for his healing? Don't you think that by instructing this man to go to the pool called sent, Jesus wanted him to realize that the very one sending him was the sent one of God? I mean, so much significance there. It's a lot of fun. Furthermore, who is it that Jesus himself sent to the world after he departed? Yes, the Holy Spirit, whom, remember, back in John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39, Jesus had just spoken of as being, symbolically, as being the living water. Remember that? A man, to be given spiritual light, must be drawn to the word of God 
by the Spirit of God, and both of those are symbolized by the water that the man had to apply to his eyes. And the Word of God and the Spirit of God both testify of the sent one of God, which is the Lord Jesus himself. As a footnote, I got out my encyclopedia because I wanted to find out more about the Pool of Siloam, and I found out that the Pool of Siloam was supplied with its water from Mount Zion. Very interesting. Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, constructed the uh, Siloam Tunnel from the Gihon Springs to the reservoir known as the Pool of Siloam by bringing the water of the Gihon Springs, which is the main water supply for Jerusalem. He brought the water um, from the Gihon Springs straight down the west side of the city of David, which is Jerusalem. And that's given to us in 2 Chronicles 32.30. Therefore, the waters of Siloam had of old symbolized to the Jewish people the throne and the kingdom of David. All right, so basically to the people, the Jewish people, the Pool of Siloam pointed to the Messiah. And you can look up the Pool of Siloam is talked about in Isaiah 8.6. This pool then contained living spring water from Mount Zion which to the Jewish people for centuries had symbolized their coming Messiah. But if we really want to see something that is beautiful and something which draws chapters 7, 8, and 9 of John's Gospel into one harmonious whole, we must remember back to the Feast of Tabernacles celebration, which had just ended. Remember, we had learned about two very significant rituals which were performed by the Jews during this joyous joyous holiday feast. One was called the illumination of the temple ceremony. Four huge, 75-foot-tall candlesticks were lit each night in remembrance of the Shekinah glory which had guided Israel during her wilderness journey. In the very temple courtyard where these large candlesticks stood, Jesus had said to the people, I am the light of the world. Of course, shocking everybody by his obvious claim to both Messiahship and to deity. Now, the second ritual was the ritual which was called the water ritual. Every day, amidst much singing and chanting and joy, a priest would go down where? To the pool of Siloam and fill a golden pitcher with water, which he then poured out upon the altar. This ceremony not only involved a lot of prayers for coming rain so that they would have a good future harvest, but it also commemorated the pouring out of the water from the rock which Moses struck in Horeb. And it was on the heels of that particular celebration that Jesus, Jesus had given this invitation. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, how beautifully does the Lord Jesus draw these two Feast of Tabernacle rituals and his own two statements, his own two claims together 
in this one miracle. He demonstrates that he is truly the light of the world, the one which the four candlesticks commemorated by healing a man who had been born blind. Secondly, he demonstrates that he truly is the source of living water, the one whom the ritual of drawing the water out of the pool of Siloam commemorated by sending this blind beggar to that very same pool, the pool called Sent, to receive the washing he needed in order to receive both spiritual illuminating and spiritual quenching of his soul. That to me was so beautiful. I had never seen the connection. And if we hadn't gone through all that study of the rituals that were performed during the Feast of Tabernacles, we would have missed that. So the man, in simple obedience, went, washed, and came seeing. Physical sight was now his. Obedience to God's word always brings sight and light and what? joy, happiness. In fact, all spiritual well-being is found in one's obedience to the plan of God. If the blind man had not responded with willing obedience to the Lord's command, most likely he would have spent the rest of his life in darkness. Without a doubt, Jesus could have easily healed this blind man, we know, without either making the clay, you know, spitting on the ground, making the clay, or sending him to wash in the pool. He could have just said a word, and the man could have been healed. But by making the clay with his own spit, and then by commanding the man to wash his eyes, Jesus was deliberately dealing with the traditions of the rabbis concerning the Sabbath day. You see, the Jews believed that there were medicinal qualities in spit. So to use any kind of medicine, including spit, on the Sabbath day was considered work, as was also the making of clay. So he really, you know, according to them, broke two of their work rules by spitting and using it and by making clay. Now Jesus, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, purposely broke this ridiculous rule made by these religious leaders so as to demonstrate that the Sabbath was made for man to be a day of rest. And man was not made for the Sabbath. That's back in Mark 2, 27 and 28. We talked about that at length when we were back in Mark 2. And he deliberately performed works of mercy and works of necessity on the Sabbath day to show the people that such works were not considered sinful by God. In fact, it would be sinful to withhold help from someone on the Sabbath day, wouldn't it? I mean, if it was a, let's say it was a Sunday now, then it was a Saturday, but let's say it's a Sunday. Sunday and you're walking along the road and you see someone lying there in, in, in trouble and you say, well, it's a Sabbath day so I can't help them. I mean, it's a Sunday. That would be the sin and that's what he was trying to show these people. The healing of the blind man was not only a work of mercy, but it was also a work of necessity. Had not Jesus told his disciples that he must work the works of him that sent him? Hadn't he just said that this man had been born blind purposely so that God might be glorified? 
performing this miracle was not a breach of the Sabbath law at all. It was both a work of um, necessity and a work of mercy, which God himself had predetermined to have performed by his son purposely on the Sabbath day in order to show the Jews how far they had drifted from the original intent of the law and to show them, show them how cold their legalistic and tradition-centered religion had made their hearts. They had no compassion for the people that were suffering around them. Not only did Jesus deliberately break their rules about the Sabbath, but he purposely tested this man by forcing him to make a decision. Would he, the man himself, obey the traditions of the elders over and above the command of Jesus and refused to go and wash his eyes, knowing that this was also considered work by the rabbis and would earn him their condemnation. You couldn't wash anything off your eyes on the Sabbath because that was also work. Or would he, in simple obedience, obey the word of God? Well, fortunately for this blind man, he chose to obey Jesus. He had remained blind all of his life, obeying the various traditions of men. He was not about to let some silly idea about eye washing on the Sabbath stand in the way of receiving the healing that he needed and wanted so badly. Because the man not only allowed Christ to do as he pleased by placing wet clay upon his eyes. I mean, you know, we never heard a word from the man, did we? He didn't say, what are you doing to me? Get that yuck off of me. He just let Christ do as he pleased. But also, he then did as Christ pleased for him to do. And the result was that he was given instant sight. Those who wish to be healed by Christ, this lesson teaches us, must first be ruled by him. Those who obediently go to the living water of the sent one weak will come back strengthened. Those who go doubting will come back in faith. Those who go mourning will come back rejoicing. Those who go stumbling and groping their way will come back skipping and leaping. And those who go away blind will come back seeing. Now next week, as we proceed through the rest of this chapter, I hope, we will see how by living up to the light that this man was given here at the Pool of Siloam, more and more and more light will be given until he finally experienced a second and even greater miracle when the eyes of his soul were opened to the truth of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the true light of the world.